I, I'm delighted to be back. I really do like this, enjoy this country. I was born in Canada, 56 degrees below zero Fahrenheit when I came out the chute. So this is pretty nice weather over here. My dad was English. My mom was half French, half Irish. So it, it feels, since this is a Commonwealth country, it feels very much like I'm at home, and I like that. Except I have tried since I was five to speak like an Australian. Nothing's happening. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> so I think that has something to say about my brain function. So Dr. French asked me, how come I have two PhDs? Well, I'm working on my third <clears throat> because there's research in three different countries that for every year of education you have beyond basic college, you reduce your risk of Alzheimer's by 20%. So I would, I'm, I'm reducing my risk of Alzheimer's. But no, the real reason is probably I wanted to be a, a doctor, a medical doctor. And I remember when I was 15 announcing to my parents that I was going to take medicine. And there was this lethal silence around the table. You know what that's like. And uh, my parents told me they didn't think I was smart enough to be a doctor. And uh, that I'd probably get married and have kids anyway. It'd be a waste of money putting me through medicine. And so for a number of years, I allowed their perspective to influence my choices. So the first takeaway is all any brain has is its own opinion. And you know more about your brain than anybody else, so avoid ever letting anybody else's opinion limit yours. So when I finally decided, <clears throat> probably just as well I wasn't a medical doctor, I'll get a PhD in brain function because I really like that. When I told my parents that I was going to do this, there was more lethal silence. And that's not because they were bad people. You know, we've gone back five generations on my mother's side, and she was the first female in five generations who ever went to college. I mean, we're talking the 20th century here, folks. So she wrote into my family script, get a college degree, which was good. But then I sort of stepped outside the family script when I got a master's, you know, and the question is, what do you need a master's for? And then when I got a PhD, that was really outside the family script and nobody came to my graduation and they said things like well it couldn't have been too difficult so I got a second one just to show that I could do it <laughs> so anyway alright let's go we're talking about brain function which I think is some of the most fascinating information on the planet and I would like to say to all the people who are under age 25 Boy, if I'd only known this when I was your age. But I'm not going to say that because I didn't want to hear it and neither do you. So I'm just going to tell you that brain function information, if you get it, and you will, and apply it, you're going to be light years ahead of most people on this planet. You can jump start being successful by decades. So this morning we're talking about the white bear phenomenon, which is really relatively new information, and I wish I'd known this earlier, but if I had, I probably would not have been quite so susceptible to running with the perception that other people had of who I am. 
So I want to start with what we call brain benders. I don't know if we'll get through all of this this morning, but we'll get as far as we can. Brain benders are brain aerobic exercises. They boot up your brain like you boot up a computer. So each little box is its own puzzle. There's no right or wrong answers. There's just what my brain has thought of, and yours may think of others, but they're really good for the brain. You can go to my website, and there are hundreds of them on the website. You can do your 30 minutes of mental stimulation every day just doing brain aerobic exercises if you want. Brain doesn't care if the words go forwards or backwards. Remember that. They can read it either, it can read it either way. So this stands for what? The word is cocky. One goes one way, one goes the other. How many are there? Two, so give me a phrase. Too cocky, there you go. Second on the left, these are types of paint, good, and what do they buy? Paint by numbers, good. Third on the left. Can be any of those. Uh, bottom left. It, this is the name of the TV program in the United States. Eight is enough. Good. Top right. Word in a word. Foot in mouth. Good. Second on the right. Menu. Excellent. Third on the right. Sleepless in Seattle. Fourth on the right. A happy crowd. A, a face in the crowd, that'll work. It's it's really, the fun thing is to take one of these and if you have the time, see how many different solutions you can come to for it. All right, good job. All right. The natural state of the human brain is to feel good. There is nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's hardwired for joy. We have four core emotions. It's hardwired for joy. The protective emotions are to give us information about situations where we need to do something about those situations, and those are anger, fear, and sadness. So when the brain feels bad, it wants to do something to make it feel better. We all do this. Babies do this. The question is, what are you doing to feel better? Will it give you consistently positive outcomes or will you get negative outcomes? And this is where all of the addictive behaviors come because an addictive behavior will help the brain feel better quickly, more quickly than some of the other strategies. So it's really, really easy to get addicted to something that will help the brain feel better very quickly. So the way we tend to feel better is by what we think and everything is preceded by a thought, whether you think that it is or not. Brain imaging equipment shows that seven or eight seconds before you're aware of thinking a thought, the brain's already thinking it. So free will is very interesting because we don't control every thought that pops into our mind. But the moment you become aware of a thought in your mind, that's when you choose Do you keep thinking that thought or think something else? Do you take action on that thought or or not? Blame is huge. Give it up. Never helps anything. 
Blame is simply an attempt to make your brain feel better, to decrease your discomfort by trying to displace some of that on somebody else. And it never does any good. But once you get that, then you can just stop blaming because it's unhelpful. Actually, it will probably end up burning up your serotonin when you blame others. And we tend to do that as human beings, you know. It's your fault. If you hadn't done that, I'd, I'd feel better. If you'd done that, I'd feel better. It's ridiculous. It's just a way for you to feel less discomfort. And, of course, depending on how savvy the other brain is, it may or may not pick that up, and it may really think that they've done something to make you feel a certain way. No, nobody can do anything to make you feel a certain way. That's your choice. So psychoneuroimmunology, PNI, I'm sure you know about that branch of science, started in Colorado in the United States in 1986, and it's all about studying what you think and how it alters the neurochemistry in your brain. And depending on what's getting altered, it'll impact your energy, suppress or strengthen your immune system, and it will impact your behaviors. So work by Dr. Daniel Wegner, he wrote a book entitled The White Bear Phenomenon and Other Brain Modalities. So think of your brain, because the brain learns fastest by metaphor. Oh, and by the way, forgot to tell you, Anytime I'm speaking, feel free to get up and stand, move around anytime you want to. Did you hear what I said? Good. Did you believe it? Good. Because sometimes I say that and people come up to me and go, you know, I felt like getting up, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to interrupt you. I'm not even visual. I won't see it. Just do it. So here's, here's the research. 50% of brains learn best, if they learn at all, when they're standing and their bodies are moving. So think back to middle school and high school. What were you told to do? Sit down, shut up, and be still. And that doesn't work for 50% of brains. So if you've got that kind of brain, get up and move anytime you want. So your brain is a pot of chemical stew. I'm going to sit for a while. I don't know what it is about Australia and my joints. I just had my left hip replaced after my second trip. I'm not blaming Australia. And it did really well. And, you know, a couple of months ago, my right hip has started to whine like it was left out. So I'll probably have to go home and do something about it. All right. Your brain's a pot of chemical stew. It is. Probably 60 different chemicals comprise that jelly-like mass. And you are the chef. Every second from birth to death, you are doing something to alter that chemical stew to make your brain feel better. And we don't really realize that's what we're doing, but that's exactly what we're doing. What would be the reason you want to alter your stew? All, all number of reasons. To relieve pain, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, whatever. Some people, you know, boredom is a state of mind, but some people don't know that. And so they try to alter their chemical stew because they feel bored at the moment. To certainly obtain pleasure, definitely to feel better, and to get energy. So you can season your brain's chemical stew directly or indirectly. 
directly is anything you eat, drink, sniff, snort, shoot up, uh, rub on your skin, um, any of those will immediately, within seconds, alter your brain's chemical stew. Uh, but you can do it indirectly almost as quickly, just seconds difference. So every thought you think is going to change that. So if you think angry thoughts, you're going to increase adrenaline and dopamine. So sometimes people will say, you know, that person's addicted to anger. And I have a different opinion. That person's addicted to adrenaline and dopamine. They're just getting their own internal substances released by allowing themselves to be in a state of anger and exhibit angry behaviors. Uh, same thing happens for people who like to take risks, which are often extroverted brains, you know, jumping out of planes. The reason somebody would want to do that is beyond my brain's capability. But lots of people like to do that, and they do it to change their brain chemistry. They get a huge hit of adrenaline, and as adrenaline goes up, dopamine always goes up. Are you familiar with what dopamine is? It's the feel-better chemical involved with every addictive behavior we've ever studied. So any type of strong emotion will do that. Exercise will change your brain's chemicals. Do what do you pour out when you exercise? Uh, be, besides sweat. Endorphins. What are endorphins? Morphine. It's the brain's natural morphine. Can people become addicted to getting a hit from their own morphine through exercise? Absolutely. Uh, all your behaviors will do that. Sexual activities is huge. I work with uh, several addictive behaviors programs because my second PhD is involved with brain function in the areas of addiction, abuse, recovery, and so on. Probably... Sexual activities is the fourth most common hidden addiction in the States because you get a humongous hit to your brain's chemical stew every time you have an orgasm. And I don't know if that's in any of your textbooks, but it is a phenomenon. So if not much else is going on in a person's life, it's really, really easy to get addicted to some type of sexual activity that's going to alter that that chemical stew. Now, here's, here's the brain law. Your brain only repeats a behavior for which it gets a reward. Remember that. You only repeat behaviors because you are getting a reward. Sometimes other people don't understand how come you're getting a reward. For example, we have a huge mental health locked hospital. And we had a young woman admitted not too long ago who was a cutter. You know what that means. You know, she cuts herself with sharp objects. And some of the nurses are going, what? What would she do that for? Who would cut yourself? So I had to sit her down and have a little talk with her and explain that the woman was in so much emotional pain that when she cut herself physically, the brain released endorphins to moderate that pain and she actually felt better so there's always a reason so if you did not get a hit from an orgasm you'd stop having them brain would not repeat that behavior and if you wanted a child you'd probably you know go down and do the test tube route because i'm telling you without a hit sex is just kind of messy and time consuming
So whatever you watch, movies, DVDs, they will change how you think and will change your brain's chemicals too. All right, couple examples. Dopamine. It's about making you feel better. It is not about pleasure per se. It's just about making you feel better than you felt before. And when you say, I can't cope, can't cope, you drain dopamine levels down in your chemical stew and then you really don't feel very good. And that can easily trigger a search for any type of behavior that's going to increase your dopamine levels. Norepinephrine helps regulate your mood and allows you to respond to stressors. And when you harbor thoughts of hopelessness or helplessness, down goes your norepinephrine, and now you can't respond as well. And believe me, they will, that will impact your mood. So sometimes we, you know, my mother's family has a familial tendency toward depression. All right, that's bad enough. But if you develop a negative thinking style, oh, life is hard and then you die. You know, you can decrease your norepinephrine levels, which makes it even more difficult to respond to stressors and can exacerbate your negative moods. Serotonin, oh, it has so many actions. It has everything to do with how you sleep. It has things to do with energy. It allows you to experience joy. If you don't have enough serotonin, there's no way you can feel joyful because that is a really key neurotransmitter. Anytime you speak or think negative thoughts, you tend to drain your serotonin. Now here's the bad news for those of us who have female brains. We have less serotonin than the male brain to start with. Go figure. That's one of my little chats with the Lord when I get to heaven. How come I got less serotonin than my three sons? There's something wrong with that picture. But that means that everybody needs to think and speak positively, and that's very biblical. There's no brain function information I've ever learned that isn't biblical. And Paul is always talking about, what should you think about? Things that are good and pure and right and happy and good to report? Well, duh. Yeah, that's going to change your brain chemistry. So we can contribute to our own depression. From the minute we're born, we develop habits that will result in something that makes our brain feel better. And I just want to reinforce that everything you do, everything you think, everything you say, everything you read, everything you watch will impact your brain function. So that's where you have to make a decision about what you're going to do, not for this present instant, but for what it's going to do to your brain's chemical stew. Now let's talk about willpower, because what you think and what you say and what you do and how you behave has everything to do with willpower. So willpower is a function of what's called the brain's prefrontal cortex right here behind your forehead. It's the executive function of the brain and what distinguishes us from most mammals. There are some mammals that actually have some cortical function. Some birds, we even think, with their minuscule little brains. 
but certainly some primates, um, dolphins, whales, so on. But they don't have a prefrontal cortex. They don't have that layer right behind the forehead, which is where we have all the executive functions, goal setting, willpower, morality, so on and so forth. Now, here's the bad news. That part of the brain is not done until mid-20s, and we'll talk about that more about that tonight. Anybody here under 25? Oh, yeah. Well, just look around and cut them a little slack, folks. Their braids aren't done yet. They are not done yet. And they will not have consistent access to willpower, assuming they've even, you know, been taught to develop some of those skills. So mid-20s. So it sort of gets a little, it can get a little easier from mid-20s onward in terms of the use of willpower. But, but hopefully your parents and teachers and role models have been teaching you how to develop those skills because it's sort of an on-off thing, you know. And we'll talk about the brain's asphalt tonight and, you know, the rates at which that develops. Just know that you're not going to have completely consistent access to that until mid-20s. I have to keep reminding myself of that because these people walk up to talk to me and they, their bodies are all done. You know, and I think, oh, they're all grown up. And then I go, oops, brain. How old are you? 17. Okay, well, then now I know how I need to talk to that brain because the corpus callosum isn't even paved yet. Forget the prefrontal lobes. So willpower can be defined as the energetic determination to carry out plans, decisions, wishes, or goals. And we really need it to be successful. It just takes a while to develop. Most of us grew up being taught to try to use willpower in a way it was not designed to be used. So get this. It rarely works well in depriving yourself of something you already do to feel better. I can't tell you the number of times I was told, stop doing that, just use your willpower. Oh, right. That's not how it was designed to be used. Willing yourself not to do something puts it right here in the prefrontal cortex working memory, and now that's all you think about. And if you think about having tried to do this, you know that you think about it more than you did before, and you probably do it more than you did before. And I think that's where Paul goes, you know, the stuff I want to do, I don't seem to do, and the stuff I don't want to do, I'm doing all the time. Well, what are you thinking? So, Daniel Wagner, brains are not designed to stop bad habits using willpower, period. When you say, don't think about the white bear, what pops up in working memory in your brain? A picture of a white bear. And this is partly our problem as people over the age of 30. We give ridiculous instructions. Don't forget your homework. What's the picture? Forgetting your homework. Don't forget to be on time so you are late. I mean, that's partly our fault because we don't even have it straight how to give instructions. So what's the word don't is supposed to mean in most languages do the opposite. Well, that's unhelpful. What's the opposite of a white bear? 
Well, if it's a black bear, if you think that's the opposite, but it might not be a bear at all. It might be something entirely different. You know, Ed Sullivan once offered $10,000 on a TV program for anyone who for 30 minutes could don't think about the ugly red monkey. He never collected. Because to don't think about the ugly red monkey, what do you have to do? Think about something else, but you'll always come back to the ugly red monkey to remind yourself to think about something else. And what's the opposite of an ugly red monkey? You know, an ugly person? I don't know. So what? imagine you're going to play darts. What's more effective for you to say, I don't want to miss the target. What's the picture in your brain if you say that? Missing the target or I hit the target. And it's not future tense. Because if you say, I'm going to hit the target, the brain goes, oh, that's future tense. When we get there, I'll help you. But you never get there because you're always going to. So you must say and think and speak and write as if what you want to do is a done deal. I hit the target. All right, you haven't even thrown the dart yet. But you've got the picture in working memory of what you're doing. I pass this exam. Well, hopefully you've studied a little. But if you tell yourself, I don't want to fail this exam, I don't want to forget what I've learned, what have you just programmed yourself to do? Block what you've learned and flunk the exam. This is so basic, dear Watson. But unfortunately, we haven't been taught this. So what is willpower designed to do? Brains are designed to provide willpower to help you persevere in doing two things. One, developing a brand new behavior you've never done before. And replacing an old behavior with healthier, more functional behaviors. I recently did a presentation to a national convention for people who work with 12-step programs. And I know a lot of religious people are terrified of 12-step programs. Get a life. They're very biblical. And they are more effective in helping people deal with addictive behaviors in many types of behaviors than anything else on the planet. Alcoholism is one. When Bill Wilson developed the first 12-step program for alcoholism, he knew it was important to help people acknowledge they had a problem. But back then, we didn't have PET scan studies, so we didn't understand about working memory. So his recommendation was, if you walk into an AA meeting, you're supposed to identify yourself and tell people what your problem is. So it would go, you know, hi, I'm Joe. I'm an alcoholic. Really? What have you just put in working memory? That you're an alcoholic, and now your brain pushes you to drink. So I'm trying to teach them that they need to change that model. If they insist on somebody saying, every 12-step group, you know, their problem, then at least put recovering in front of it. I'm a recovering alcoholic. That is a different picture in the brain. But then you immediately follow it saying the behaviors you are doing. So it would go like this. Hi, I'm Joe. I'm a recovering alcoholic, and today I drink water and apple juice. 
What's the picture in working memory? Do you see how that works? And your subconscious, which cannot use language, but which follows the pictures. Now, when you're thirsty, it pushes you toward water and apple juice instead of toward booze. Works for everything. So if you've decided that uh, you've got the latest research on cola drinks and how they're neurotoxic, and you decide, okay, I'm, I'm going to stop drinking cola drinks. It's unhelpful to say I'm not going to drink cola at lunch today because what's a picture in working memory? Cola drink. So you stop talking about what you don't want to do. And you only talk about what you are going to do. At lunch today, I'm drinking apple juice. At lunch today, I'm drinking orange juice. At lunch today, I'm drinking water. What's the picture in working memory? What you are, what you want your brain to push you toward. All right, let's talk a little bit about mirror neurons because these are so fascinating. How many of you have heard about mirror neurons? A few of you. Good. All right. So you know the Bible says that by watching something, you change. Well, you do. You change your brain. When you observe somebody else's behaviors, whether it's in real life or whether it's on a movie, whether you're imagining those behaviors and creating your own movie in your mind, up here in the prefrontal cortex, you have what are called mirror neurons. And they're literally mirroring what they're seeing. They fire as if you were actually doing it. Your motor neurons aren't firing but your mirror neurons are firing. And if you did a brain scan of a person actually doing the activity and then another brain scan with them just watching another person do the activity, you cannot tell the difference between the printouts from the brain scans. They look identical. So when the, when the New Testament said, if you, if you think about committing adultery... Might as well have already done it. And people are going, oh, I don't see that. You know, you, you didn't actually do it. You just thought about it. As far as your brain goes, there's no difference. You could not see the difference on a PET scan study. So as you watch people do behaviors, you best be choosing to watch people doing the kind of behaviors you want to exhibit. Because it's your brain's acting like you've already done it yourself. That's where I think we get the copycat murders when there's a particularly grisly murder and somebody watches that and then they reenact it. So eventually, if you keep watching this behavior, you simply move the behavior to your motor neurons and now you start doing what you saw done. And this is huge. Some of you may need to tweak the people you hang out with. I have. Because of mirror neurons, if you want to develop a new behavior, the fastest way to do it is find somebody who's doing it really well, watch them, and then move that to your motor neurons and start practicing. It speeds up your learning process. But if you watch people exhibiting behavior that you really don't think is going to do good for you down the line, your brain's still acting as if you're doing it. Now, watching you, yourself do something in your mind's eye can really speed up learning. 
Here's two studies, PET scan studies. You're familiar with the word PET scan, positron emission tomography, brain imaging? Up and down means yes. Well, you are familiar with it now. So they had a, had a person, gave them a piece of music, and they asked them to practice for two hours a day just on that piece of music for seven days. So that's 14 hours worth of practicing. And then they scanned their brain. And their motor cortex had been reshaped based on that 14 hours of practice compared to the PET scan study before they started practicing. Now, they took another individual, gave them the piece of music, and said, we don't want you to touch the piano. We just want you to look at the music for two hours a day, and we want you to imagine in your brain that you're practicing it. End of 14 hours, they scanned the brain, compared it to the brain that had actually practiced for the two hours. The cortex had reshaped itself in the very same way. So... If you really have to do something in a hurry, you do some actual practice, and then when you're doing other things, you do actual rehearsal in your brain, and it will speed up your ability to do that. Now, here's, I think, the, I don't know if it's good or bad news, but it's news. Your neurons make no judgment when you're watching something about whether it's good or bad, desirable or undesirable. Makes no judgment. It says this. If you put it in working memory, it must be something that you want to do, so we're going to help you pattern your brain toward that. And it's already laid out a piece of software. Within three years, you will pick up the behaviors of the people you hang out with. Did you hear me? We hang out with people sometimes whose behaviors we know do not contribute to success. And we think, yeah, but I like them. They're fun to be around. It's not going to impact me at all. Oh, yes, it is. Here's the research. So far, three clear areas that the mirror neurons push us to actually implement. Smoking cessation. If you want to stop smoking, you hang out with people who don't smoke. If you don't smoke and you hang out with people who do smoke, you are at high risk within three years to begin smoking yourself. Obesity, do you need to drop some weight? Hey, hang out with people who have the lifestyle who gives them optimum weight. Otherwise, you're going to eventually start putting on weight, and this is just so clear. I think that's one of the reasons obesity runs in families because you're around people all the time that are above optimum weight. I come from a family on my mother's French side that has the West Coast concession on obesity. Every woman in that family is within an inch or two of my height, and I'm not very tall. I, I tell people I never grew up tall enough to even reach my own head. You know, it's... Um, it's a little frustrating sometimes, always asking somebody, can you reach this for me? I think the least any of my family, female family members on that side weigh is somewhere between 230 and 250 pounds. And I think part of that is because everybody's heavy, they hang out with each other, and now they get heavier and heavier. So I hang out with them, but not as much as I used to. 
because my goal is to avoid obesity. It's not good for the brain in males or females, but in females it's lethal. If you're a female and you're obese, you have an 80% increased risk of developing dementia because obesity is so bad for the brain. So you might want to take a look at that. And happiness. The brain is wired for happiness. You hang out with people who aren't happy, it's going to change that. One of my girl cousins, she likes me. I take that as a compliment. I love her. I don't like her very much. There's a difference. But I try to hang out with her once in a while because, you know. But I began to notice that every time we had lunch together, I was depressed for two days. Okay, depression runs in my mother's side of the family. I can't afford that. can't afford to be depressed just because I had lunch with my cousin. I mean, do you want to listen to somebody up here who's very depressed and talking about brain function? I don't think so. So, I have a standing appointment with myself. So if somebody asks me to do something and I don't want to do it, no arguing, no excuses, I, I already have an appointment. And because it's the truth, it comes across as authentic and I have no immune system suppression. You know, lying suppresses immune system function. So you want to avoid that. I think that's one of the reasons it's one of the Ten Commandments. So every time she called me for lunch, I was busy, had an appointment. And after about a year, she calls me up and she goes, how busy are you? And I said, well, look at my schedule on my website. Well, she says, you never have time to have lunch with me. And I acknowledged that was correct. She said, tell me the reason. Well, now you have to decide. Do you think it's going to improve anything by telling the truth? or not. And I decided to take the risk because I love her. And I said, okay, here's the deal. Every time we have lunch together, I'm depressed for three days. I can't afford that. Well, why would you be depressed? Well, the brain cannot answer a why question. But one of the reasons is that you're always, always complaining about something. And that burns up my serotonin because I'm hearing it. Really? I didn't know that. Well, that's my brain's perception. Well, she said, could, could we try again? I can change. And I go, yeah, I know people can change, but they have to really get it, and they have to really want to. And I think this is rather superficial, but I'll give her a shot. So she says, I'll meet you for breakfast at IHOP. Meet her for breakfast. We walk in, there's a line of people. First thing out of her mouth is, ooh, there's a line. We're going to have to wait. This is awful. I said, hello, this is what I was talking about. Oh, I didn't realize I said that. No, I'm sure you didn't. But if you want to hang out with me, I can't listen to those kinds of comments and not have lowered serotonin. Oh, okay. So I chat for a while, and then I said, why don't you run up and get a menu, and we'll look through the menu, and then we'll know what we're going to order when we do get seated. So she goes out and gets a menu, opens it, and she goes, ew. They've changed the menu. I don't like this menu. I can't find my favorite dish. I go, here we go again. 
By the time we got seated, in fifth, well, then I said to her, I'm not going to say anything. It's just when you say anything neg- negative, I'll raise my hand. Oh, that's fine. She said, I'm visual. I'll get it. <clears throat> By the time we got seated in 15 minutes, my arm was tired. I said to her, my arm's tired. We're going to sit down and you start listening to yourself. And when you say something negative, you put your own hand up. You know, first ten minutes, the waiter was at our was at our table <laughs> ten times. It's real. Who do you hang out with? Energy. Dr. Gordon says, think positively about the day ahead and you increase your mental and physical energy, and you do. Basic medium of exchange in life is energy. That's all we are at the bottom line. Can't do anything without energy. Can't even think. Certainly can't be successful. So Anthony Robbins, have you heard of Anthony Robbins? He does some things that I think are a little squirrely, but he also has some pretty good brain function behind some of his, some of the things he says. So this is what he says. Without a defined target, your mind's energy can be squandered. When you know your outcome, You give your brain a clear picture of the type of information being received by the nervous system that need priority. The brain needs this clear picture to be effective. And that's like saying, I'm hitting the target. Here is my goal. I'm hitting the target. The body's energy is closely associated with what you picture in your brain. And some people have come up to me and said, I don't picture anything in my brain. And I go, yeah, you do. There isn't a brain on the planet that doesn't think in pictures. You just haven't taken time to figure out what those pictures are. So I suggest you do, because your subconscious is following those pictures. What you think is what you get and what you become. And this happens over and over in life. I decided in 1998 that I wanted to visit Australia. And since I like to speak about the brain, I decided it would be really a much better deal for me if somebody would invite me to Australia to talk about brain function. I don't advertise ever. My deal with the Lord is if somebody invites me to come and speak and I can do it and keep my life in balance, I'll go there. But I don't advertise. What I started saying to myself is, I am lecturing in Australia. And I'd see the map of Australia, and I'd see myself in different places. A year later, I got an email being invited to Australia to speak. This has happened in my life so many times I can't even tell you. So what is it you want in life? What career do you want? How do you want to behave? How successful do you want to be? What are you picturing? Create and concentrate on positive images, and old ones will fade and lose their power. Because you're no longer talking about the old ones. Had a woman come up to me, and she said, prayer doesn't work. I said, well, that's interesting, because the studies show prayer is very effective. How are you praying? She said, well, you know, just last week, she said, I I tend to be a screamer. I backed up. She said, when I get upset, especially with my kids, I scream. Oh, I thought, man, you poor kids. Not doing her any good either. 
She said, so I spent three hours on my knees the other night praying. And I said, and what did you say? She said, I don't want to scream at my kids. So what's the picture? Screaming at the kids. And she thinks prayer doesn't work. The Bible tells us how to pray. If you read the Lord's Prayer, there's not a negative in it. So I said to her, well, you better stop praying like that. You know, you might start out with, Lord, I screamed again. Hmm, forgive me. I speak kindly and patiently to my children. I speak kindly and patiently all the time and on and on. Now, she's just changed the picture in her brain. So, you know, we say God doesn't answer prayers. How are you praying for heaven's sake? Now, I'm not saying God is not powerful enough to answer a negative prayer. But that's not the model he gave. So, therefore, we know it's not as effective. Uh, moods and energy. Positive moods are related to high energy levels. Negative moods with tension. Hello. How much energy do you want? How much anxiety and tension do you want to feel? Uh, Dr. Howard wrote the book... Hmm. Manual for the brain, I think it is. You know, copied off of the manual that you buy in a car. tells you how to take care of your vehicle. Well, manual for the brain function is really good. Uh, negative thoughts and feelings just, just deplete your store of energy and our energy deficits. Think about how many people you know who think and speak and act negatively. And then you ask them, let's go do something. I don't have the energy. Well, of course they don't. Many people are not successful in life. And I know one of these presentations is on emotional intelligence. Is that Saturday afternoon, maybe? Okay. Be there. Emotional intelligence is, is something that has transformed my life. How emotionally intelligent you are is worth 80% of your success in life. IQ a mere 20. And now we have this whole body of knowledge of how you can raise your emotional intelligence. So thinking success actually helps to hardwire into your brain the behaviors, the steps, the strategies that you need to invoke in order to be successful. I don't think there's anybody on this planet who starts out not wanting to be successful. But the average person is not nearly as successful as he or she would like to be. And I think it goes back to basic brain function. I'll finish up with one little example. A woman came to me a couple years ago. She said, I need you to do the thinking styles assessment and help me understand my brain function because I have to change jobs. I said, really? Have you been made redundant? I'm learning that. That's an Australian form for getting fired, I'm told. Nobody's made redundant in the States. So I, I like these new expressions. I don't always use them correctly, but... The other day I said, you know, anybody under 25, brain's not done yet. Brain's, uh, you know, the bun's still in the oven. <laughs> Young man came up to me and he said, my bun's not in the oven. I said, how old are you? He says, says 17. I says, yeah, it is. He says, no, I'm not pregnant. And I go, I wasn't talking about pregnancy. And he says, but that's what it means. 
So that's the risk in traveling, you know. So she came up and said, um, no, I have to find a new job because they've told me I need to make a presentation in public. And in the United States, speaking in public is the number one fear. It even beats out flying. She said, I can't speak in public, so i got to change jobs. I said, well, you can speak in public if you want to. Oh, no, she said, I can't. And I said, well, what are you picturing in your brain? And she's one that says, I'm not picturing anything. I says, yeah, you are. Sit down. Tell me. When you think about speaking in public, what movie plays in your brain? Oh, she says, let's see. I see myself standing up, walking toward the platform. I am holding my three-by-five cards. I fall going up the stairs. I run my hose. My cards go everywhere. I try to gather them up now that they're not in order. I stand up and I do a horrible job and I'm booed off the stage. I said, very good. If that's your picture, avoid speaking in public. You can change the picture. You can see yourself standing up, holding your cards, walking gracefully to the front, ascending the stairs on your feet, going through your cards that cue you what to say. I know it's your first presentation. It's not as smooth as it will be when you've done it for 60 years. But you will do a good job, and they clap, and they like it. Your choice. You sit down and close your eyes and you picture what you want to have happen. For 10 minutes every day, you'll do a great presentation. She looks at me and she says, you're crazy. I said, well, I may be. I've been told that before. But this is brain research, so you choose. So she leaves. I thought, well, I wasted 30 minutes there. Phone rings six months later. This voice says, I thought you were crazy. I've changed my mind. I said, I need more information. (laughs) She says, uh, you know, I was the person that had to change their job because they didn't want to speak in public. I go, oh, good. Well, how's it going? Well, she said, I have a new job. Uh, My job is training people to speak in public. (laughs) She said, I did what you said. I did a good job for the first time, and I found I liked it. All right, so get with it because it's real and it's biblical and you're the only one that can do it. I can share the information with you. I cannot do it for you. So God bless you as you make choices that align with the way the brain was created. Thank you.